Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have follow-up questions from a webinar Scott did on reforming church culture to goodness culture. So Scott, I don't know what you thought, but I had a pretty fun time getting to do the the webinar together with you last week. What'd you think of it? Well, I thought it was a lot of fun and rewarding, and I got some nice feedback from people. Uh, the Facebook chat was good, mm-hmm. and um, I think that people are interested in this. I mean, there are so many people who have suffered at the hands of churches yeah. because of the culture of a church. It's, it's just, in a sense, it's the way things are. And those are the things that I think we we need to concentrate more on and work on and realize that we should never underestimate the significance of the culture in which we work for making us into people who fit into that culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. So if someone wasn't there, uh, if you'd like to to get a replay of that, I'm going to include a link in the show notes uh, for you to be able to sign up for a replay, as well as the first chapter of Scott's book called um, A Church Called Tove. And so, Scott, if somebody wasn't there, um, you just give them just a, a brief couple sentence description, maybe that would help inform um, our audience what our questions are going to be about today. Well, what, what my daughter and I have done is written a book that will come out in October, early October, called A Church Called Tove. And it is about nurturing habits of goodness. And so we went through seven habits of goodness. But to nurture habits of goodness should create a culture that detects habits that need to be resisted. And we call these, instead of habits of tov, or we call them habits of toxicity. Mm-hmm. So we, we become agents in our world making better cultures by becoming agents of Tov, and that requires that we learn to discern and resist cultures of toxicity. So we went through seven characteristics of Tov and seven characteristics of toxicity. Yeah, which are all just insightful and, and, and very helpful as we work to do that in, in our own church cultures. So I want to encourage you again, link is in the show notes if you'd like um, to catch up on that conversation, as well as get that first chapter and um, those specific different elements that Scott laid out. So, all right, Scott, are you ready? Uh, I'm for ready. Questions? Okay. ready for questions that people have. Yes, we, answered, we responded to some. Yeah, And there were a lot more to talk about. So it's worth having some more time to talk about this. That's right. So we thought we'd continue the conversation here. So I'm going to get started with a doozy here for you. Somebody asked, they said, Scott, I hear that you're translating the New Testament, the Second Testament. How's that going? <laughs> that has nothing to do here, I guess. But I know. Somebody just wanted well, to know. Let that, the, be a fun, quick update. Give us a quick update. Yeah, the whole rough draft is done. And uh, it's about 400 pages. And I'm now working from the beginning to the end, going through the whole thing again Mm -hmm. with my translation and the Greek text and just making sure I have everything that I I, I translate every word and don't forget things. And uh, 
I was recent, recently, uh, as I was translating the Gospel of John, I was going through David Bentley Hart, and uh, six or seven times he, he omitted half a verse or a clause or an expression, a couple words. And I can understand as one who tra is translating that that's hard because we're taking our eyes from one text to another, and it's in that transfer that you can get lost. So I'm going back through the whole thing again, and I've done Matthew, Mark, Luke, and today uh, I went through some more of John, and tomorrow I start on John 14. Mm. And so when I get all the Gospels done, I'm going to send the uh, those off to the publisher and um, and start getting some feedback on, on what we need to do for it. So I think by, I'm hoping by the end of August, I have the whole thing redone again, but okay. it requires a lot of concentration and uh, a lot of continuous time and work. Yeah. Well, thanks for the update. Yeah. Let me see the finished project. So, okay. Well, I've got a, a, a real question here that's in relation to our webinar. And uh, this person asked, he's, he says, so I find myself in a church that is characterized by most of the toxic elements mentioned in Scott's list. The pastor is a narcissist. No one listens when abuse is reported. What do I do? Any advice? Well, or you have uh, you have three options, I suppose. One is you can just go along with it, and silence um, is is a form of complicity. Um, I mean, not everybody is called to speak up about everything. Let's just you know that's what that's why we have Facebook and Twitter is everybody thinks they have to pile on <laughs> and get outraged by everything that happens and make a comment. We don't need to do this. I mean. More people need to learn not to talk about some of these topics. The second thing is uh, the person could find a different church, but it is it takes a long time at a, a, another church to discover the true culture of the church. So there's no guarantee that it's not going to be toxic. So the third thing is, and this is this is my recommendation with all these kinds of projects, and that is to become an agent of Tove yourself and find others who like you want to be agents of Tove. Now this doesn't mean you spend all your time criticizing and getting together and bellyaching and moaning about the church, but that you start building pockets of Tove in your church that can eventually percolate up and to change the culture. Oh, this is important. Uh, it is it is common to say, okay, the pastors are narcissists. There's a fear culture. People are afraid to say a thing. They think, well, if we get rid of the pastor, it'll all go away. It won't. There's yeah. a culture that propagated that and held yeah. it up, and that's the existing culture. And though that culture will remain because most of those people will remain. Mm -hmm. So the only way to change the systemic top level is for the lower level to subvert toxicity and supplant it with tove yeah which are long hard processes because it's like, very difficult 
it's tempting just to say, yeah, just take uh, away the um, what you see and what's negative and what's bad. But in reality, it's just like weeds, right? <laughs> you pop, you take one weed. It's because there's a culture that's produced that. <laughs> yeah. Well, think about think about what's going on in the United States right now. Okay, we have all of this um, anarchism. Yeah. In the United States, and there's a culture that led to those behaviors. Those behaviors are also promoting and creating that culture. The solution is not simply what a very well-known person in Washington, D.C. thinks is to bring in law and order. Yes, there's some of it that probably needs to be done, certainly needs to be done, but that won't change it. There's something that propagated that culture, produced it. Yeah. That's what, had, what needs to be worked on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, like we said, is is, is long, hard work. Yep, very it's hard. So it's important to have this conversation. Okay, yeah. next question here. Curtis asked this. He says, Eugene Peterson writes about how the lure of crowds is as strong, if not stronger, than the lure of sex, drugs, etc. Do you feel this is accurate? And if so, how do pastors resist the temptation of crowds? And I think by crowds, this person, Curtis, uh, means attracting a large audience on Sunday. Right. A, yeah. a big, big, you know, in other words, go for numbers. Or even, you know, uh, social media or, yeah, you know, yeah. so many different ways to build a platform. But yeah, anything in that thing. And a lot of people measure their success by these things. And some pastors aren't doing so well in their church. So they try to create a big social media and they get that kind of thing. Um, this is uh, this is bad teaching and bad theology and a bad practice that will promote a personal culture that is toxic. Uh, We have to measure success, if I can even use that word because it's been so contaminated by these crazy cultures. We have to measure things by faithfulness, by love, by Christ-likeness, what I call Christoformity, by holiness, by justice. We have to measure things that way. And we need constantly to recalibrate how we're measuring things in our churches Mm -hmm. because butts in the pew bring in money in the plate, bring in budget being met, Mm -hmm. bring in a sense of success and accomplishment. And that, I mean, just, just look at the churches of the New Testament. These pastors, if there were pastors, like the way I just used that word, were almost, most of them were unpaid. There were some, you know, don't muzzle an ox while the ox is treading the grain is an expression that these people deserve pay. Paul got paid, but Paul also was a co- was a, was a worker. Uh, he was a tent maker. So I think we need to recalibrate success by faithfulness, and we need to start thinking about uh, how the early church measured its success and how the early church formed the kind of consistent uh, multiplication of of the gospel and Mm -hmm. believers and start thinking in those categories. And I mentioned this in the webinar. 
I have a pastor friend who was a former student in, in a former era who whose church decided to focus on spiritual formation and half the congregation left because they were no longer going to measure it by how big the audience was on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I think numbers probably in big churches ought to be banned from any conversation and nobody should know how many people are in the church for a Sunday service. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be talked about because we the churches that need to count those numbers don't need to count those numbers and need to focus on other things. Otherwise, pastors know, you know, there were 83 people here because I could see that three quarters of the, of the sanctuary was filled. They know mm-hmm. how many people are there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we need to, this just has to, we just have to get rid of this idea. So are you against just measuring things in general, or do you think we're, we're just measuring the wrong things? And if so, what are the things like the early church measured and, and saw as successful? And, you know, what would you say? Would be well, I think we need to measure discipleship. Yeah. Not how measure. We, not how, how, Well, we, we talk about what are the characteristics of a disciple. So I talked earlier about Christoformity. You know, I wrote a book on this about Pastor Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, discipleship. I have a little book on this called One Life. This is what we should be focusing on. And and you can't quantify these things. Mm-hmm. These are formed in relationship with people over time. And you find it in decisions that are made, discernment capacities, mm-hmm. moral uh, character and uh, integrity. This is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking we're looking for people who who are like Christ. How do you measure Mr. Rogers? You, you It's a hard thing to do. Yeah. But you measure the fact that that was a good man. Mm-hmm. And I was with him and it was a, it was a good time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a different person because I spent time with Mr. Rogers. This never happened to me. I never met him. But that's, that's what we need to start thinking about. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I know pastors who are doing this. They're not, they're not measuring how many people are at a church on a Sunday morning. They're measuring whether people are growing in Christ. And we need to map out those areas and then start looking at those. And it might not transfer into numbers and it might transfer into laying off somebody, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. But important for the culture. Yes. All right. Uh, next question is from Brian here, and he says many churches now use the title lead pastor instead of senior pastor. What do you think of this in light of spinning false narrative and calling pastors to be uh, pastors instead of leaders? How important are titles in communicating our role? Yeah, you know, I've never been asked this question. Senior pastor is not uh, is not a new is a fairly new term itself. I think when I grew up, uh, churches had one pastor mm-hmm. and everybody else, I think, did something else, even though they may have had many people on the staff, maybe pastor of youth, pastor of children. I don't usually it was a minister of music, maybe pastor of evangelism. Um, I don't have any problem with the reality that churches eventually are going to gravitate toward a single leader. 
I'm not saying that that's right, but that's pretty common. That's an ordinary human instinct, it seems to me. So I don't have a problem with that. But I do think that we need to learn to see ourselves as pastors, if you're a pastor, rather than a leader. What word we use to frame our identity, our calling, our gifts, our mission will shape what pops out at the other end. Mm-hmm. And if our, if our church, this is something I believe in, if our church is too big for me to be called pastor, then we need to have a smaller church. If I'm the only pastor and it's a huge church, then it's too centralized. You know, I have friends who are pastors of pretty sizable churches, and they have a lot, a lot of pastors in the church. Mm -hmm. We need, uh, I think another way to look at this is everybody in the church, everybody who is in any sense a member, needs to be able to identify at a moment who their pastor is. But that pastor also has to identify them as someone they're pastoring. So in other words, it has to be a relationship. If if I say uh, my pastor is Rick Warren, I go to Saddleback, or my pastor is, is Andy Stanley, because I go to North Point, or Craig Rochelle, I don't know the name of this church. Um, and that person doesn't know me. He's not my pastor. She's not my pastor. We have to have everybody being pastored and every pastor knowing who he or she is pastoring and every person knowing who is her or his pastor. Mm-hmm. That's the only way we can talk about pastoring. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if you have any thoughts on like the... Um, growth of the small group movement. And, you know, if I'm thinking of like where formation takes place and where, uh, how it kind of seems like you're saying pastoring, who's there in the hospital with me, who's there by my side for the highest and lowest moments of my life, um, pointing me back to Jesus. I would say oftentimes a lot of those large churches would say that happens in the context of small groups. Do you think pastoring is something that happens in that environment or is that something outside of? Um, no, I think I totally agree with that. Yeah. In other words, I don't. I don't think. I think the the, the ranting about mega churches is just a is a fad. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just envy mm-hmm. that somebody's church is bigger than yours, or that you're not good enough to to uh, to attract a crowd like that. Okay, let's get over that. What I want to know is if everybody has a pastor. And every pastor knows every person they're pastoring. That's what's critical. And that means in these mega churches, they have to have a multitude of pastors, pastoring people in small groups and smaller sessions. Now, maybe you have a pastor of eight small groups or 20 small groups. And that pastor meets with them once every three, at least with the leaders or something, with the whole group every now and then. Yeah. So I be, I believe that that pastoring does not have to take place. Uh, and it doesn't have to only be a have, paid role either. No, it does not have to. Uh, you don't have to reduce the size of your church 
to the size a person can pastor in order to have pastoring going on. Mm -hmm. You have to have sufficient number of pastors mm -hmm. to pastor the people you've got. So all that goes back to lead pastor. Okay, then we got a lead pastor of all these pastors. That's fine. I, but I get rid of it. I, I, I'm nervous about the word lead and leader because of the culture from which it comes, not because of the behaviors that are done. Good pastors are leaders, and they know leadership. But so much of the discussion about leadership comes from business people, which is not based upon the spirit and grace and following Jesus. And we're always trying to transfer things from one culture to the other. And it's always from the business world to the church. We're learning this from, and we do learn things from that, you know. But I think we should preserve our own language, the language of the church for the people who are in that sense leaders in the church. Let's use church language. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. And so Sarah asked a good kind of follow-up question to that. She specifically asked, how do we move from managing churches like businesses if the pastor isn't the leader who is? So we've kind of talked about that already, but anything to, to you know wrap around Sarah's question there of, of that movement maybe from managing like a business to managing as God designed the church to be managed? In, in a church called Tove, Laura and I discuss the characteristics of churches that are shaped by leadership and business, uh, the leader model of a business, and what happens to churches when we start doing this. And we, we suggest that the model should be Christoformity. And so we have to start building at the bottom layer of our circle of tove, I call it. We have to start building in, in the, at the very bottom of what creates culture, the, the characteristics of Christoformity, mm -hmm. so that they become the dominant characteristics of a church. All right. I think um, if you go to some churches, you say, wow, these people are really wealthy and successful. And you go to other churches, and you say, these people are really engaged in their local community. You know, which one do we want? I mean, if we spend sufficient time to be discerning of the culture that is being formed in our church, we should be able to recognize whether it's crystal form culture, Christ-like culture, godly loving culture, mm -hmm. or whether it's a success-driven power-driven, fear-shaped culture. We should be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. and it, it comes to the surface, and then it, it begins to participate, precipitate that in, in other people. I think we also have to have deacons or leaders. Now, this is important to me, and I don't know why this doesn't happen more often. And maybe it doesn't, it's just not, I'm not a part of the conversation. A lot of times, I see that pastors are preaching on the most recent book that they like. Now, I like that when they're using my books, and that's the only time I like that. And actually, what I'm saying is, I'm not sure that's the way to go. Okay, they're getting a clever new idea. Okay, and often 
I see that this stuff is coming from the business world. I want to know, as I listen to pastors, I want to know who do they quote most often? Uh, who are the people generating the most significant ideas for this pastor and his preaching or her preaching? Is it, uh, is it Carl Barnett? Is it Bill Gates? Yeah. Is it uh, Donald Trump? Is it Barack Obama? Uh, or is it Jesus? Is it Paul? Is it the prophets? We no longer, it seems to me, in a lot of churches, have series on a book in the Bible. It seems like six to eight weeks and we're done. We got to move on. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a huge mistake. The willingness to preach for six months from Galatians is a good thing. All right now, our church preaches from the lectionary. One of the great things about the lectionary is that you don't get to choose your texts. They choose you. And you have four texts usually to get to choose from, an Old Testament reading, a psalm, um, a New Testament lesson, and a gospel text. Uh, over time, if you pay attention, most of the most important texts of the Bible are present in the lectionary. So you will be preaching about significant events, significant people, significant theological things, significant passages. Our, uh, Ordinary time, which is basically the summer, uh, churches have always taken the freedom to work a little bit on their own if they want. So you might do decide to do a series on on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Although it does show up in the lectionary a lot. Or you might decide to do a series on Joel the prophet or Hosea. And we need to do this. We don't. We we, we don't have that. I I read books by popular Christian authors. And they're not based on a book in the Bible. They're not expositions of scripture. Mm. They're just catchy ideas. Yeah. You know, they're not the result of scripture study. They're a result of a clever idea that can be marketed well to a new audience. We, we need to do better than that. Yeah. I, I agree. I, so, and I think here's a good follow-up question. Um, that James asks. He says, we seem to live in a culture, even church culture, that wants quick and easy answers. For a pastor, how does the concept of perseverance play into creating a tove culture in a local church? And for example, Peterson calls, Peterson's call to a long obedience in the same direction comes to mind. Okay, I think, uh, I think what we can do is I'm just thinking off the top of my head is we, we have to be patient ourselves. We have to think long-term, but we need to use examples of people who have walked in obedience, a long obedience in the same direction. In other words, tell stories about 80 year olds yeah. who've been faithful to Christ their whole life. We need, we need to resurrect models paradigms, examples, heroes in that sense mm -hmm. of faithfulness. Faithfulness is measured by faith over time, not a sudden moment. We exalt in our churches young people, the newest song 
the newest book, yeah. the newest idea. Um, the Christian wisdom theme indicates that we should be exalting the old idea that has proven great over time and useful and practical, you know, faithfulness, loving your family, doing your job, providing for your family, attending church over time, faithfully, giving over time, all those things over time. Mm -hmm. That becomes the models of what we talk about. But I, I mean, I'm serious. When we are obsessed with the newest thing and the youngest thing. And yeah. that's, that has, that has implications. Mm -hmm. The most neglected people in your church are the wisest. Yeah. And it's something that we've talked about before in our series on Pastor Paul with the juvenilization of church culture and um, just how corrosive that is to wisdom culture and to healthy church culture in general. So uh, faithfulness is his faith over time, and we need to celebrate that. That's good. Well, that is about all the time that we have for questions. Scott, do you have any you know closing thoughts to uh, wrap our time up today and anything that you'd like to send our, our listeners away? You've done great just getting uh, rapid-fired questions out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I would encourage people to work on this theme of tov, of, of goodness that we want to have people in our churches who are good. We want leaders to be good, but we have to define this well. And Laura and I have attempted to mark out uh, themes connected to Tov that will help us build cultures of Tov. And these are themes of Tov that will resist toxicity. And it is these toxic elements that create cultures of power, fear, and abuse. And we need, um, we need our churches to recalibrate themselves by focusing on Tove. And I'm hoping that people will buy the book. Um, you know, I don't do these things for money. Um, I hope they'll buy the book, and I hope people trust that. Uh, I hope people will buy the book and read it and pass it around and have small group Bible studies about it and form subversive cultures of Tove in toxic churches and get pastors and get elders and get deacons and leaders, if that's what you want to call them, to read and think about Tove and what toxicity is beginning to look like in their own church. Yeah. And just imagine the impact if we all took that serious of a Tove culture that it could have. So um, yeah. want to yeah. encourage you, our listeners, uh, again, if you'd like to check out the webinar, the link is in the show notes, as well as um, where you can pre-order the book. Scott said it comes out in October. We encourage you to, to grab a copy. And um, yeah, well, Good conversation today, Scott. Uh, Thanks, Jeff. We'll look forward to keeping it going next time as uh, we hope you join us next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 